Hello. How's it going? It's good. Busy morning. What's new in the world of Animal Crossing? Lol. People are tired of hearing me talk about yeah. Animal Crossing. Let's not talk about it. I'm sure. I was going to say, right before we hit record, I was commenting on how I miss hearing Nate's vocal warm-ups. I, I missed that from the office. I missed like seeing people's random habits or just like habits that aren't mine. They're not it's random. funny because this this totally plays into one of the topics today. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon and my co-host is Eugene Can. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. I gotta come clean. I did not read your article for like the first time. Jesus. In a hundred in a hundred twenty-four episodes. I did not prep for your topic. I've no idea what you're gonna talk about. And to put Eugene in the clear, he actually wrote notes. So it's not it's not my fault. I mean it's you, not you his fault. It's not his fault. This this last thing I wanna say before we are going, I feel like it's a bit of a disservice. How do I put it? It's not that I don't take making it up seriously, but I think that I was getting too loose with kind of like thinking of things on the fly. The lack of preparation was something that I prided myself on because it just allowed for more fluid discussion. But then I realized that if I don't prepare to maybe this certain bar level, then there's potential like talking points that you might miss versus like just letting a free for all super fluid conversation take yeah, place. I so appreciate I just, that. Well, it's just more like a, a stylistic difference, right? Yeah, I understand. I mean, it's, I'm glad that you agree that some degree of preparation means that your conversation can reach a level that you might not otherwise reach. And I guess the argument is that I never like to be too prepared because it would just force you down this checklist of things you need to, to talk about yeah, or get off. So you don't the you're list. not organic. Yep. But I trust that you always have it in you to find something to talk about that's not scripted. Thank All right, you. Eugene. Take it away. You go first. Oh, okay. So I actually thought about talking about this subject a couple weeks ago because this has been in, I guess, our world of news. I feel like the regular person might not have come across this. There's this platform. Because it's such a bad launch. Yeah. There's this platform that launched. I actually couldn't find the exact date. Exactly one month ago, April 6th, Quibi launched, which stands for Quick Bites. Okay. Launched with... Worst name ever. Worse than the name Macon. Why is it the worst name ever, though? It just sounds Quibi. weird, right? Quibi. You know what makes it bad is that you don't know how to pronounce it. Is it Quibi? Well, is it... I think that's less of an issue. It's just, any names that use Q-U are challenging. Yeah. Okay, so Quibi ostensibly stands for Quick Bites. Launched a month ago. $2 billion in funding. Leadership includes former Disney DreamWorks executive Jer <clears throat> Jeffrey Katzenberg, 
and former eBay HP CEO Meg Whitman. So it's really like the amount of money and these famous people combined made this like an attractive bit of news for entertainment and media journalists, but maybe not so much for regular people who would actually watch the stuff on Quibi. It's meant to be a streaming service for people who are in motion and mobile. This is not great that it launched during a pandemic, which is kind of like the opposite of last week's episode where we talked about like things that arrived during the pandemic that kind of benefited from it unexpectedly. This is the opposite of that. Quibi offers 175 right now, original quotation marks, Hollywood quality shows that are under 10 minutes. And they have this tech gimmick of what they call turnstile mode. I'm going to use so many air quotes in this episode. Turnstile mode means that you see something different if you're in portrait or landscape on your phone. So you downloaded it, right? That's where we're going. So yesterday, Eugene and I were talking about what subject to pick. I wanted to talk about Quibi. What I find interesting, sorry to cut you off, is why were you so interested in this topic, but didn't go through the steps of downloading it? I think my interest in the topic is the same as like the entertainment media journalist because you know you and I keep track of platforms that start and then fail, start and then eventually fail, start and then lay off 50% of their staff. Kind of the ending is always the same. But Quibi was sort of just like primed for a spectacular disaster. So being able to watch like pre-launch and seeing this kind of hype surrounding it and see Quibi really try to put an effort into their launch and then very soon after launch just take a hard fall has been I want to say enjoyable but I feel bad because obviously people's jobs are at stake here they just did not think this through in my opinion so I want to tell you that I watched some of these shows I would say they didn't think it through so much as they have a false sense of where the media landscape is right now. Oh, you know, I'm going to borrow something my sister said describing another company. She said they have very little planning and sheer optimism. And I think that is completely true for Quibi. Very little planning, lots of optimism. So the exciting thing about talking about this actually is like downloaded the app and then I watched a bunch of shows. Okay. Like I did due diligence on this. I watched. You got further than me. Did you download the app? Yeah. I downloaded like right when it came out. Oh, did you? Did you watch anything? I watched Punked and I didn't need this app, nor did I feel the need to pay whatever, seven bucks a month. For so this I think that's relevant as well. So if you had downloaded it in April, you got three months free trial. When I downloaded it yesterday, I only got two weeks. After that, it costs $8 a month for an ad-free subscription, eight US. And if you let yourself be ad-supported, then it's $5 a month. So I watched Punked as well. I watched the first episode of Punked. I watched, all of these are episodic. In order to be like under 10 minutes, which is like their promise, they're all episodic. Watch the first episode mm-hmm. of this movie called Most Dangerous Game. I watched the first episode of a TV show called Dummy. I watched the first episode of this like YouTube-esque kind of series called Useless Celebrity History. And the best thing I watched was the first episode of this docu-series, I Promise, which is about LeBron James' school. 
The Promise School in Akron, Ohio. So that was the best thing I watched. And it was best on what it grounds? It was the best in terms of being a show I would actually want to watch and that I was interested in. Everything else I've listed that I watched and then also everything else or most of what I saw on the home screen are things that I wouldn't have an interest in outside of Quibi. Like if it was on YouTube or Netflix, like I also still do not see myself watching it. Like it doesn't even have to be on this like other app I have to download. Like it's not even a show I would watch for free on YouTube. So yeah. the LeBron James docuseries, which was the best thing, is unfortunate that it's on Quibi because I wish it was like a 1.5 hour documentary on Netflix instead of being like 15, 10 minute episodes on Quibi. Like, I actually feel that Quibi does the documentary a disservice by having it on their platform. Yeah. So Quibi's whole thing is that, like, you watch it on your phone only and, like, on the go. But I just don't see... Okay, could you... I feel like you could have predicted its failure because I just don't see how it can provide something different from IG stories or Snapchat or live or, or Facebook or YouTube, or any of those things that also have mobile apps. Quibi makes this argument that people want higher quality content just on their phones. I've never, ever said that to myself. Right? That's what I think at the very core is the problem here. There is not a lack of good things to look at on your phone. The draw of having both a portrait and a landscape mode. So Sharice touched upon it briefly, but basically what they do is there's a different framing depending on whether it's portrait or landscape. It's not like they take, you know, when they when they go from one to the other. It's not like it was shot natively in portrait and then, you know, they, they, they rearranged it for if landscape. If anything, it looks more like it was shot in landscape and then cropped to portrait exactly which also goes against their whole ethos of like being mobile first there's no sort of value in terms of how it's shot and presented also i feel like right it's just more like it's like a weird add-on feature they try to pedal there's this article that some of what i've been saying is based off of the article is titled Quibi is what happens when Hollywood overvalues content and undervalues community. And it's written by Mike Masnick and published on Tech Dirt. And something he says that I agree with is thematically, people at Quibi misunderstood how regular users use their phone, like across a spectrum of ways that people use their phone, like a misunderstanding of how people switch between portrait and landscape on their phone, a misunderstanding of what people want to do in the downtime while they're waiting in line to check out their groceries, a misunderstanding of how much people are willing to pay for like a mobile only app. You get the idea. Just like at each of these mm -hmm. points, it's like they operated in a silo of wouldn't it be cool if da da da, but did not actually consult regular people who use their phones. So all of this is entertaining to me in terms of like seeing a media platform build expectations and then not meet those expectations. And then we're looking at like half a billion dollar loss for this company right now. But I thought what would actually be interesting to you 
slash this conversation is Quibi's decision to try and control their branding and all of the conversation about their shows. So something really interesting in the article that Mike Masnick wrote is that there was a fan podcast for Quibi. Do you remember reading this? Yep. Rob Desendorf and Danielle Gibson started a show previously called Quibiverse. And I haven't listened to any episodes, but by the description, it sounds like a fan podcast. Like they're really into Quibi and Quibi content. So they produced a podcast to like talk about the shows. And then they received a season desist letter from Quibi that according to Desendorf said, you can't use the name Quibi. You can't tell anyone that you're about Quibi. You can talk about Quibi, but no one can know through your title and you can't have any artwork that resembles our stuff. So this is just like... I think that's one part, but the one that is even more of a representation of what they're thinking or how they're thinking is the inability to screenshot. So I think you actually should have led with that one versus the cease and desist on the podcast. Sure. I was going to get to it eventually. I don't know which one I should have led with necessarily. But yeah, Yeah. they can't screenshot. You can't screenshot. You can't record content. I can tell you about these shows I saw, but I can't actually send you anything that would help you understand. If you take a screenshot, it's a black screen. Which to be fair, like Netflix on some browsers, you also can't take a screenshot. But it... But Netflix is a little bit different as well because Netflix is mostly like TV and laptop devices. But Quibi, if they're going to like, this goes back to the idea of being like mobile first. If they're really just phones only, screenshotting and sharing those screenshots is like such an essential part of your mobile phone experience. I think about the experience that comes with, it's it's obviously not the same, but when people share a song that comes with a piece of album art on yeah, Instagram. yeah. Like that itself creates more interest than me never knowing. Yeah, Yeah, no, it's pretty wild. I mean, it is really indicative of what I said at the top of this section about Quibi just wanting to be in control of any conversation that is about the app and about their shows. Like not even, I feel like we talked about this, but I forget in connection to what, but not allowing for any type of memes to arise organically one of the main vehicles of communication and virality. Yeah, I really liked this long quote from another article in Vulture, if you'll bear with me while I read it. It was written by Catherine Van Arendok in this article called Let Me Screenshot Your Quibi Show, Cowards. Their small excerpts are essentially forms of quotation. They act as shareable pieces of larger works, sometimes with the goal of illuminating the work they come from, but often getting cut away from their original context, sent out into the world to stand on their own and gather their own meanings. GIFs are the most common, out-of-context excerpts of longer video works, so expressive and self-sufficient that they can communicate an idea without carrying along any of their original framework. Screenshots can function the same way, often speaking more toward the context in which they're being deployed than referencing the original work. They become their own form of language. But as they circulate and accrete new meanings, they also make the images, reactions, stories, and personalities from the original work more familiar, more of a bedrock part of cultural discourse. So I really liked this. Even separate from Quibi, honestly, I liked this explanation of the way we use screenshots and GIFs as language. I think that's like a thesis in itself about internet usage. Mm-hmm. And Quibi's desire to 
stamp that out basically means that nobody will talk about Quibi, positive or negative. They've just eliminated conversation. Yeah, I think this is the one thing that people fail to understand is that in a pre-launch phase, you have a general belief on where your brand should go, right? But the reality is that the minute you press play, you have to let the market determine how they want to interact and use your product. And I think having too much control over it, it's always a balance, right? Like, because you want to build a brand, you want to make sure people play by your rules so that you can move forward in a general direction. But at the same time, some of these feel like missteps that will need to be solved. Otherwise, there's a chance that like it'll just never gain any meaningful velocity. And they've already yeah. they've already sputtered out of the gates, right? So that's generally where you spend a lot of money in the beginning phases is like, hey, get this out the door, right? And now what are they going to do? It's like, well, some of your fundamental product flaws actually are really big issues. And they kind of need to think, rethink, well, we probably have to pivot somewhere here. And for me personally, it's going to be challenging because two things are going against them. Three things. The three things that I, I've sort of just pulled from this. It's not like I came with a laundry list of things that I think Quibi sucks at. It's more that, number one, there is this uh, a misunderstanding of how people communicate, aka yeah. the inability to screenshot slash let your brand live and breathe. The quality yeah. of content isn't great, albeit you can probably improve upon that. But the third one, the biggest one, is the fact that nobody is looking to spend, you know, between five and seven or eight dollars a month for this type of product. That's probably yeah. the biggest one because you can't really overcome that. The rest are easier fixes no, and changes like potentially. Tech issues, like it just comes with time. Patch, you know. And then, like you were saying about content, I actually, there was something else I wanted to say about the content, which I'll get back to. But the cost is a really big one. I think they could just go the ad route, but they're trying to fight with, rather than trying to fight with like Netflix and Hulu and those streaming services, I think their real competitors are free streaming services like IG Stories and YouTube, which I already said. Can we add one thing? that we forgot to mention is you also can't watch this from the comfort of your own home and have it casted to your no, TV. No, you can't. It's literally your phone only. There is no desktop app. There is no TV app. You can yeah. only... So they just have to like fully embrace it, which that yeah. supports like my argument. Like Their competitor is not Hulu, Netflix. Their competitor is the things you're watching on your phone, which for many people is probably, like I said, a million times already, like social media platform streaming. Yeah, because the whole argument was you have, you know... 10 minutes, you're waiting for a train or a bus, yeah. uh, waiting in line for food, whatever. Yeah. And this is where you insert Quibi into your life. I want to get back to the content. I, I kind of, you know, threw it under the bus earlier. I said the content is not good. I would not go back to it. But actually, it's almost so bad that if they just let conversation happen around it, if they let it become memes and gifs and screenshots, it could still be popular. Like popular things don't necessarily have to be artsy and thoughtful and serious. Like popular things can originate from being simple and derivative and basic. And I think that's fine. Yeah, if I can ask you a question, do you think that their content strategy 
is in some ways a takedown of the content strategy of an existing Definitely. streaming platform like a Netflix, like a Disney Plus. Albeit, I'm, which I think is an issue because then there's no real reason for you to go there. You know what I mean? If there's a better version yeah. of what I want to see on Netflix, I will go there, right? Versus like, I'm, I'm making this up as I go along, but maybe they just became a place yeah. that- yeah. I agree. Oh, it's all reality TV. You know what I mean? Like, just pick and choose somewhere unless they think they have the the sort of war chest oh, of that, money, which, all. I mean, $2 billion, that's not chump change, right? To go and go that direction. What was it before? We talked about this a while ago, but uh, remember one of the media platforms yeah. that we personally Video. were fans of? Yeah. Was it Topic? Topic went into a streaming thing. Yeah, like Topic was something that did a lot of long form, uh, yeah, investigative pop culture journalism. Yeah, something along those lines. And they ended up going and pivoting into a streaming service as well. And for them, I I mean, I haven't heard anything since. I can probably just type it up right now and see what comes Topic up. Topic is supported by some other media company. Yeah, Topic is is still up and running. A studio that is supported by First Look Media. So I don't know if their decision was, I don't know. I can't speculate. I'm not going to speculate. Yeah, they're, they're still running. They still have written yeah. pieces available to read, actually, online. And you can go through the archive, which actually a lot of their pieces are evergreen, in my opinion. But not about topic. Well, I guess mm. I could say what I was going to say about the content on Quibi yeah. is that I feel like they want to be highbrow. You know, that the quote I said earlier about being Hollywood quality is along the lines of something that Meg Whitman said, like one of the leadership of Quibi. And I feel like they translated Hollywood quality into filming styles and lighting and cast that are Hollywood quality, but the actual writing and content of the shows is not. So it just looks like it's Hollywood quality but it doesn't feel like it when you watch it. What could work really well and what works in pairing with yeah. being on your phone, opening up mobile phone conversations is embracing those reality TV shows, embracing the kind of YouTube-esque hosted shows. And I think people could potentially go to the app for that content. So basically you're, you're saying that the type of content they're looking for is just like misaligned. Yeah. Like I said, it goes back to my argument that they're trying to be in the same lane as a Netflix. I think they actually do have the content that I've described, but they've mostly been advertising their movies and TV shows like Netflix, but then they advertise their movies and TV shows as being even shorter episodes that are appropriate for your like mobile lifestyle. But I, I guess my own, my own take also based off of this conversation is that's like the incorrect direction. But I think that both of us are saying like the only way their strategy can work is if they stop trying mm -hmm. to control the conversation around the platform and their shows. I do wonder if there's a better content angle than what they're doing right now. Like, I mean, it's probably too late to, to change and pivot, but like, what don't they just, if they just stuck to like sports, let's say, you know what I mean? I'm just, not they would, but like, hey, let's start with sports and then we'll like yeah. branch out. Because at least you have a very clear 
point of differentiation. I'm just referencing things that exist. Like I think the athletic is a yeah. good example of yeah. a sports based media company that just talks about sports. Right. And to, to be honest, if you look at the cost, obviously for them, they need a lot of scale, right? A massive amount of scale for this to be successful because for seven or $8, I keep saying that seven or $8, but $7 a month or whatever. Yeah. For $8 a month, there are single or small media company teams that are charging $8 a month. Right. And they're probably far more financially, not in terms of absolute sales, but like they're able to run sustainably. Right. So I think that what I'm trying to get to is like, if you have $8 to spend, do you spend on Quibi or do you spend or do you support an independent media outlet? That's what I'm trying to get at. Cause like, that's always the argument is that I have, you know, $20 to spend on subscriptions. Do I spend it on, this person's Patreon, yeah, Quibi, Netflix, Spotify. Like, there's only so much you can spend. No, on. I, en- I entirely agree. I don't think, I don't see why anyone would pay for Quibi. I really don't, unless you just have a lot of money, or if you are an entertainment journalist. A- about content, one more interesting detail is that Quibi has said it plans to roll out about seven thousand pieces of content in their first year, if they make it a year. Who knows? That's still 11 months to go. So they already have a lot of content in the back burner, which on one hand, as a business makes sense because you need to keep rolling out content after you launch, but might not give them a lot of room to switch directions. But you know what you mm-hmm. said about sports makes me think again about yeah, yeah. the only thing I, I mean, that was more like that I might watch I... the rest of while I have this two week trial, which is that I promise documentary about the LeBron James school. And the reason why I want to watch it is because, well, I already know about LeBron James and it's only available on Quibi. Not to say like, I definitely think they should go into sports, but it's like going along that strategy of like leveraging subjects that people are already into, know about, want to know more about, and then making it exclusive. Which is interesting. Doesn't LeBron have his own media platform? Oh. Yeah, he does undefeated yeah well maybe quibi paid lots of money my final thoughts on this is that i do think quibi is interesting to think about as a thought experiment for anyone interested if you think about is there any remaining pocket for mobile streaming content that hasn't been already filled and what would you fill it with if there is could you carve out some kind of niche within everyone's already extremely ingrained mobile phone usage. So I think that's an interesting way to think about this problem. I don't think that you should really separate the device from the content, if, if that makes sense. Like I think the content should always come first, like the direction of the content, the editorial direction, etc., and the distribution of it, whether it's mobile, desktop, etc., yeah, like that is like a part of it but it comes downstream yeah like i don't think you i think they reverse the order a little bit or they put too much emphasis on i think i just posed that question because that's obviously how they went around thinking about it i posed that question because that is what they started with like a year ago or however long ago Mm -hmm. they started building this company is like what is missing from people's mobile habits but you're totally right and that's actually something that i've said before about mobile strategy that it's really a content strategy and not a device strategy. 
in my eyes, you always think about the intangible things first because that is sort of the most important thing to get right. The intangible being like the direction, the strategy, art direction, creative direction, etc. I mean, that that content strategy question is even harder the, if I was an entrepreneur with $2 billion or trying to raise $2 billion. It's like, how can I make something that has a fighting chance against all of the streaming services out there, both free and paid? I probably wouldn't have gone after Netflix. That's a first, a first initial thought. I would probably choose something a little bit more niche. Your subject also involves technology to some degree. Technology in the time of pandemic. I'm making this up. You have to help me out here. I did not read your subject, so you have to help me with this segue. Yes, correct. It does. So let's move on. All right. My subject this week is called Home Screens. Quarantine is the future big tech wanted us to want. How long before we want out? This is a piece by Drew Austin, who writes the excellent Kneeling Bus newsletter. It is, in many ways, sort of this ongoing analysis of digital culture, I'd say. And, you know, it touches upon sort of the role technology plays in all facets of our life. In this particular piece, what he's discussing is how technology is rapidly playing a big part in this pandemic, but also what are the potential outcomes post-pandemic because of technology? And will we be able to recognize that, hey, what they're setting us up for is not what we want, or at least that's the theory anyways. One of the early passages in the opening paragraphs is something that I really wanted to highlight. At home, movies can make us nostalgic for the mundane, now forbidden rituals they depict. Shaking hands, packing into elevators, dining at crowded restaurants, population density is suddenly a visibly relevant metric to everyone, not just city planners. So this immediately mm -hmm. sort of sets the tone for like all the things we used to do when it wasn't quote unquote forbidden. The way that he positions it is that technology companies now want us to think that the real world is in many ways not as exciting as we think it should be, right? So the way that Drew describes it is that he positions tech companies in a way that they're trying to enrich our lives because the real world is not as exciting as it may seem. And thanks for bearing with me with all these quotes I'm going to give you because it's just a lot easier for me to communicate some of these more complex yeah, ideas because I think Drew does a great job of explaining it. But he says, the physical world appears as a cumbersome, geographically constrained interface that the internet could streamline, making activities like talking, shopping, banking, and sharing photos with friends more convenient and for tech companies themselves, more profitable as space ceases to limit scale. So then he goes on to state that the internet has been, mm -hmm. in many ways, our savior in this pandemic, or at least they want us to think they are. So, you know, for example, us, we've been generally unaffected. Those with digital jobs don't really have any issues continuing on with work. And obviously, we're, we're more than adequately entertained with Quibi. all these internet-based platforms, Netflix. Spotify, et cetera. Yeah. That's, still, yeah. that's still in great abundance. And there's another part within this piece where he references Ian Bogost, who also mentioned that perhaps we actually began this act of self-quarantining earlier on because mm. all these new apps and platforms that have risen up over the last few years mm -hmm. have generally pushed us indoors. Like, There's no reason why we need to leave the confines of our home 
whether it's education, like streaming education, e-commerce, food delivery, messaging and social media, and entertainment. And this is the one he left out, but I think it's really important is gaming. Like I think a lot of people- So basically you're saying that tech companies have convinced us without us really noticing that we prefer to be indoors. Correct. Or at least they've created services that have pushed us indoors. And also marketed those services as being better than the real world equivalent. I don't know if it was so direct as saying like, hey, this is better than going to movie theater. <laughs> but I think, yeah, I mean, what is what is big tech too? But I think as we as we run down this, these this it's almost like a list of things that they've done. I think as I was thinking about this more and more, mm. I think one of the biggest difference lies in when we have choice, right? When we have choice and whether we don't have choice. If we're forced to do something, as in social distance or quarantine, then I think it immediately psychologically makes us take for granted the stuff that we're missing out on. So, you know, us forced to stay inside means, oh man, I miss going out and meeting my friends for a drink or grabbing dinner or going to the park or playing a sport. The fact that we don't have access to that right now. Yeah, you realize how much you miss things. It puts a greater emphasis on the physical world. So we don't actually know. I mean, this is more mm. of a circumstantial thing. Like you don't actually know if you miss it or because you don't have access to it, in my opinion. So technology yeah. at a time when we had choice is seemingly what we and wanted. And now in a situation where we have no choice, right. we are not so enamored by the technology we have in front of us. Exactly. So that's maybe my slight pushback. So this next passage is something I've been loosely thinking about when it comes to mm-hmm. the creation of digital things and how we present and message through digital mediums. Because there's generally speaking a, a, a restriction that comes with all digital things, right? They they have to- We, we kind of talked about this when we talked about indie mags. Yes, correct. And here's this quote. Although the screens, browser tabs, and app interfaces that currently link us to broader reality can fulfill some needs, they also impose their own particular restrictions. In a recent essay about the need for spatial logic and digital tools, John Palmer writes, messaging apps are stacks of bubbles. Video calls are faces inside static rectangles. There are only so many degrees of freedom for users inside of these apps, which makes them simple to use. But this simplicity also strips away so much of the freedom we have during in-person interactions. You can type any message, but typing a message is all you can do. Physical space, by contrast, is not optimized for any specific type of interaction, providing leeway for the nonverbal functions that human presence fulfills. So I think that's like so well written because like, let's say we hang out tonight, right? There's so many ways that I can communicate to you that bring a sort of richness and complexity that it's so hard. And you, that's the thing you take for granted, like, oh, this is convenient, right? I think that's the one thing that I think humans have over-indexed on convenience. And by virtue of that, they fail to realize what they've lost due to convenience. It's crazy how much more I've thought about human interaction when you're in a physical space. Like, just being able to see someone below the shoulders yeah. communicates so much more. I, kn- I know it sounds like, dumb like when i'm saying it it almost sounds dumb to me but the fact that i can only see you from like the neck up and i can't i have no other clues about like your body language or your emotions or anything 
you have no distance. Sorry, I could go on for ages. Like if you think about a group of people, there's so much communicated based off of like where people are positioned in relation to each other. And I've seen this happen on video calls where you're with like more than six people. People are disoriented because just those squares appear in a different order for different people. Because we're so spatial that even in a flat surface Mm -hmm. where it's like blocks, we think of people as being next to each other. So, I know, it's crazy. Just more that we've like taken for granted. I'm just as guilty of this, but in a bigger group setting on a Zoom call, your eyes are not always on the speaker, but they most likely would be in a physical setting, which means that your nuance and your communication could very easily be missed if I'm like doing something else, which is a high probability. Austin goes on to outline that tech companies like Amazon and Zoom benefit from what he calls an atomized society where these tech companies serve as bridges or mediators. He uses an example from Rob Horning who discusses Airbnb and says, it's in a platform's interest that people find they can't get along, can't communicate, can't resolve their issues. This strengthens their demand for a third-party mediator. I'd also throw in StockX and Goat into this, right? Basically, like they benefit off of humans having friction. I'm sad. (laughs) And mistrust in each other. And to further this point, pandemics pit us against one another as we're each threats to each other and in turn require the mediation of, say, Amazon's rating system to signal trust or Zoom's recording function. So like if you're a teacher and you say some something off the cuff, I can refer back to the tape. So basically tech benefits off of us assuming the worst from each other. Right. That's an example. Like they can literally market features as quality ins- assurance, such as like Zoom recording. And then another thing they talk about, but I don't want to get too much into because I think this point has sort of proven itself. It's that obviously in these times, government surveillance will potentially increase. Well, it's not just that government surveillance will potentially increase, but there's the creation of opportunities for government to consider surveillance, right? Once, once this becomes prevalent through you know, commercial yeah. means, it becomes a tool that the government can potentially use. I'm not being a conspiracy theorist. I'm just saying like by tech companies opening these doors, like yep. it's easy for other entities to see opportunities. So this is the last point to make and it's a little bit long, but I think it's really important towards wrapping everything up. And it essentially talks about what happens if we overly prescribe to big tech's role as the mediator and what's the trap that might be set. Sounds overly dramatic. <laughs> According to Jenny O'Dell, who wrote How to Do Nothing, she says that the opportunity to interact with others of all walks of life through things such as public transportation is really important. It's essentially the reverse filter bubble in a way. So in regards to this, there's an argument that this is connected to by French Marxist philosopher Louis Althusser, who said that true societies can emerge only within spatial constraints where individuals live in bounded proximity without the ability to easily disperse. In such settings, individuals have no choice but to encounter one another repeatedly and establish durable connections based upon a firmer foundation than the exchange value those relationships promise. This represents quite a different logic than that of an app that enables hiring random and often unseen strangers to perform tasks for us at a social distance. Just to clarify, the last line about the app does not come from Althuser. I don't know about that because this is basically a copy and paste. Uh, You're just as 
I'm because he passed away in 1990, yeah, right? He his existence is like pre-apps. I'm gonna guess that came from Austin, <laughs> but I get it. So Althusser, this French Marxist philosopher, says yeah. that true societies only arise from being in physical relation to each other and repeatedly. So seeing someone in real life constantly establishes the base of like a good society. And then Austin, the art author of this article, is saying that that's like a completely different logic from yeah. what we and currently function under, where we use Upwork and other hiring platforms to hire people across the globe. Got it. Sorry, that was just a summary. So Althusser further suggests that forced to have encounters that last, forced by a force superior to them, is quite important. That means there's some sort of larger governing body that's bringing us all together. And I think that's sort of what culture and society is, right? It's not yes. allowing us to pick and choose like with great accuracy who we want to hang out with. But unfortunately, that's sort of where the world's going. Yeah. Like filter bubbles, private communities like ours. Like these are all things that pretty much fall in line with this. This is what happens when you double down on digital interactions. So such forced encounters work against the ethos mm -hmm. of frictionless convenience that governs the commercial internet, especially under quarantine. This is by Drew. Online, we do not have to occupy any specific place, much less visit repeatedly. And in an, and in an environment made up mm. of ever-changing feeds, we frequently can't return to the same place even when we want to. That part about convenience, I think, is is pretty key because when things are too easy, I, I said this in an intro to the making briefing a few days ago but that's the thing is that convenience itself has its own quandary of problems is that the right yeah, word? yeah that use? is the right word to use i mean it reminds me of that new york times op-ed we talked about before by tim Wu. i'm sure other people have written about this since then but whenever we talk about convenience i think back to this february 2018 piece written by tim Wu called the tyranny of convenience for the new york times Basically, he makes this argument as well, that we have become trained to assume that convenience equals good instead of questioning convenience at what cost. Like, what do we give up in exchange for convenience? And Austin's kind of making the same argument that by going with frictionless convenience, we are, we are giving up our own choice for what technology and commercial products want from us. And do you know why we demand convenience? I feel like this is a setup. I feel like you wanted me to better lead you. Tell me, Eugene, what does convenience lead to? Well, it's clearly because <laughs> of the demands of capitalism and productivity, no? I mean, that's why we're so hell-bent on convenience, to increase productivity. And why do we need increased productivity? clear yeah but there's a lot of value that comes with having inconvenient things you know what i mean we've seen it like making coffee the inconvenient way in itself has benefits yeah not putting my nespresso capsule into my machine has benefits yeah both for you psychologically and for the world to a degree yeah wait so can i, I ask you my question that can i ask you the question that i had earlier yes so i had a question i didn't want to interrupt you earlier about this French Marxist philosophy, since Louis Althusser died in 1990, so his philosophy is a little bit 
older now. I still agree with it, but I wonder if we're too far past it. I don't think you can go back to that ideal. I think it'll be challenging. I think that if this, I think that if these learnings that we're establishing over the course of this pandemic and just the continual questioning of our relationship with the digital world doesn't go away, I think these are thoughts that we'll always have. And I think what's important is for us to understand how the digital world becomes a tool more than it becomes a dominant force. And it's not like those two are like one or the other. It's more that when I think about how I use digital tools, I don't want it to run my life. Although in some ways it has started to run the lives of some people. Mm. The one thing like my sort of cap off to this is that I think our biggest challenges as humans are, are to fail to understand sort of the privilege and silver linings we have in our lives okay. until it sort of hits the, the sort of extremities until something really bad happens. Oh, I missed that person. Or like, why did I lose connection with that person? It's only when your for- hand is forced. So I do wonder if like humans can inherently pull back. And I think two things, it's like, you obviously you need time to think about this shit. Like, it's not like this stuff just sort of happens out of nowhere. And like, oh, suddenly like you have this light bulb that goes on, like, hey, I'm going to do this. Maybe you do, maybe you don't. But I think there's having time to think and or getting in the, mindset of of analyzing all things around you and it it's it's this thing that i think has made life a little bit easier to to kind of navigate for me anyways it's just like all these hypotheticals all these things that bother you or that you appreciate why do you appreciate like just understanding the why behind all these subconscious and conscious thoughts you have actually start to like develop into almost like a playbook in a way i personally like you know there are certain things that I, I knew I'd need to do better. Like I think one thing that even before this um, pandemic hit, like I just got in the habit of calling my parents like two, three, four times a week, even if it was just for like 10 minutes. Like I always had a routine now, walk into the subway, there's about 10 minutes there, I'll call them and we'll talk for 10 minutes and I'll do it with regularity versus once every like three weeks or once every month, right? So I think that that's what's almost important is for you to understand the things you know are important, and then find ways to make it work within your life. I think what you're asking for is so difficult to live out. Well, it's difficult, but at the same time, like if you don't do it, then I think you just become subservient. Because at the end of the day, like I think all humans are under, in the Western world, anyways, are under the pretense of some sort of freedom. Th- but suddenly, your freedom is actually, in many ways, not. If your ability to make decisions is not defined by you yourself, and it's defined by like. A digital platform then i think suddenly that also changes your position in the world that's like a some deep ass like phys- philosophical shit but i think that it, at the same time it's like people kind of want this freedom and i don't think they really know how to manage and or to really apply freedom um in their own lives think about it we've ju- we've just talked about it like the freedom to decide is not really in your own hands the freedom to decide is based off of who has the highest rating on amazon for this product I'm trying to think how to respond. There's just, you've, I don't even know how we wound up at this point, but you're I talking it, about like guiding life philosophy now. No, but it all kind of, it's all sort of intertwined in a way, right? Because I think that what, what tech wants to do, it wants to become like a guiding force in our lives. And it can in some capacity, but at the same time, it's like, you have to be cognizant of the fact that it will fall short in some places even though it doesn't want you to think it falls short i'm not necessarily saying i disagree with specific points you make but i think i'm hesitant 
to respond in detail because when you we talk about the word freedom, I feel like that is a very broad word, and freedom can refer to a whole very large host of things in which we have different ranges of freedom, and also yeah. your freedom and mine you're, might you're be right. different. I, I, so I'm just that's I'm just I hesitant like, right now to yeah. like respond to that in particular, but something I did feel like I could respond to is more concretely this idea of appreciating what you have before you don't have it right that's what you said about our biggest challenge as humans like failing to understand our privilege or the good things we have in our life i think it's something you have to practice and you don't immediately i'm just like speaking for myself i don't think i immediately realize what it is that is most valuable to me while i have all of the things that i have it's not necessarily like the first few things that come to mind. I feel like family is kind of an obvious one. Even then, I think when family first leaps to mind, it feels like a societal obligation that family is important. Mm -hmm. And so it's not just about appreciating things that universally people tell you to appreciate, like having food and shelter and family, but also figuring out what what am I taking for granted that I have? And I don't even know how you go about doing that. I know some people do. Maybe the reason why it's difficult for me to respond to this is I'm not doing enough of it in my own life. Like not doing enough of like appreciating the things that I have that I might be taking for granted. But it's not, like I said, it's not easy, but at least be cognizant of it. That's the thing I think is that, that's the toughest shit is just like trying to figure out the stuff that is actually meaningful to you and how to actually action it. Like, I think for me personally, I'm, I th- well, if, if Nicole was to listen to this podcast, she'd be like, yo man, you spend so much time on your phone. And I actually don't disagree. And I th- and I wonder why, but I also think that it's awareness around it and then awareness to change it. And I think there's certain things that you can't, you can't expect to make wholesale changes like tomorrow. It's like, hey, it's incremental. And actually, there's a there's a bit of a flywheel effect when you get in the habit of changing a uh, changing something in your life. It's like, oh shit! Like now I know how to change something. Now I know how to like actually move the ball forward so that that game plan actually can be applied at scale to other things. Yeah, we talked about this on an episode about productivity a couple of weeks ago. the The best way to cap this off is this last quote from Drew. He says, "The internet was never meant to be a self contained space." It is an augmented reality, not a virtual one. And humans can't live entirely within it. And I think that just plays to the reality of us as humans and what we need and want, right? As much as I personally, you know, have been, I myself, like so many other people around, have had to social distance and or, you know, obviously we're super privileged we can work from home, right? Some people are like putting their lives on the line, going out and working yeah, for you know, what equates a little bit better than minimum wage or minimum wage, you know, in the United States or whatever it may be. And we're super fortunate. And I think that hopefully there's hard lessons and I don't have a more politically correct way of saying this beyond just like the PTSD left over from this can hopefully spawn some sort of action or change. I thought that was fine. Politically 
correctness wise i mean it's more like you have to leverage like the shittiness that's going to come with all this and hopefully come out of it better and i it's just it's not that easy but at the same time like you gotta look you you can either just like throw in the towel or you can at least do things that allow you a bit more the word without sounding too like i mean i think we talked about this before as fluffy. well if if we are in that position like you and i are to have jobs and to have the comfort of not needing to go out and risk our lives then what are we doing to contribute to our self or societal betterment you know like i guess for me i just feel when I think about things in perspective, like I'm not an essential worker, I'm not a health worker, like I have the capacity to not just be getting through this and like just getting by and wanting to put it behind me. I have, I have the capacity to take something from this period of time mm. and learn some and learn from it. And like you said, like to take action as a result of that learning. Yeah. I like the quote from Drew that you concluded with and I, I kind of interpret it as, for myself, I interpret it as being the life we live in physical space is still the primary life. And the online version is second to that. Yep. And I think that's the balance that he's referring to. We're in danger of tipping entirely into online first and that virtual space first. Good place to cap things off. Yeah. I feel when we overly prepare ends up being a lot longer i also didn't prepare for yours are you gonna read the article oh yeah i will right. um i was just remarking on how you said it's long i don't think it's longer i think the length depends on the complexity of the topic fair anyway if you're interested in hearing more about macon reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture you can visit us at macon.com m-a-e-k-a-n.com you can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms if you like this podcast you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or supporting us on Patreon. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at charisse at macon.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or eugene at macon.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Charisse. And this is Making It Up. <laughs>